And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, and it's great to be with you today. Yes, it's Friday. Uh, finishing off the week strong here in the dojo, and I had a great, great week, and uh, we're we're going to finish with a bang. We're going to have a good friend, William Hemsworth, come on the show. As you know, William is a uh, fantastic apologist in his own right. He works in, out of uh, Arizona, and um, he uh, himself puts out his own video podcast engaging in all sorts of things, including apologetics and theology. He's convert to the faith, and we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite subjects. I mean, it's the Holy Eucharist. How, how can you not love talking about the Holy Eucharist? And today we're going to take a different tack than I think what's normally taken in regards to the Eucharist, and that is we're going to look at the Old Testament background for the Eucharist. Um, yeah, usually when it comes to apologetics on the Eucharist, um, I think you immediately think of the institution narratives in the New Testament. You think of some things Paul says. But what about the Old Testament? Did God lay out any... Um, Anything in the Old Testament that would prepare his people for the coming of the Eucharist? Well, that's what we're going to talk with uh, William Hemsworth. Of course, that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to do the Finding Fallacy. But as you know, it's Friday. Here in the dojo, we do CrossFit training, which means we switch things up a little bit at the end of the uh, weekdays. And we do a propaganda technique instead of an informal fallacy. Today's propaganda technique, uh, this is a one that I'm glad we're doing because it, it's an interesting one. It's called a fire hose of falsehood. Also, we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father, a biggie in church history. It is St. Athanasius of Alexandria. So we got a lot in store for us today. So I want to begin by welcoming you all to the show. Hello, everybody. Listening on radio around the country, also all of you watching live stream on our social media outlets. Uh, great to have you with us. And lest I forget, you podcast peeps, welcome aboard everybody, you listeners in the future who listen or watch on uh, all the different distribution centers uh, via podcast. And I know there's a lot, and it's all over the world too. So uh, welcome aboard everybody. It's great to have you with us Um I, uh, well, you know, every Friday I want to talk a little bit about the Apocrypha Apocalypse channel on YouTube. As you know, uh, this is a channel William Albrecht, myself, and David Zavaras runs on YouTube. It's kind of like our own tiny little corner of the web where we look at the most important issue, in my humble opinion, between Catholics and Protestants, which is the issue of the canon, specifically the Old Testament canon. Why? Protestant Jewish Bibles don't have seven Old Testament books that Catholics and Orthodox do. So uh, the title is Apocrypha Apocalypse. And as I mentioned before, when I first started, I thought, wow, we probably get maybe a couple hundred subs if we're lucky. You know, we're uh, pushing, uh, we're, I think we're across the halfway point, 3.5K uh, subscriptions, which is amazing considered 
considering how narrow of a topic, you know, this channel is. So if you haven't checked it out, please do me a favor, check it out, Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube, or just type in Gary Machuda, and that should come bring that up as well. And uh, if you enjoy what you see, please sub and, uh, you know, give a thumbs up, like, ring the bell, tell your friends, toot the horn, whatever else is out there. Uh, I truly, truly appreciate it because um, basically I, I wrote three books on the digital canon. I could even write a fourth one. I'm in fact, maybe I will. Um, but hardly anybody reads. But a lot of people watch videos. So I figured, why not take the material in my books and put them into video form? And that's kind of like the generation of Apocrypha Apocalypse. So I think we'll reach a lot of people, especially non-Catholics. I know there's a lot of non-Catholics that subscribe to that channel. and uh, But we need the exposure to, to increase so that more will be invited to uh, hear the Catholic side of things. And that can only be done through subscriptions. So I do appreciate you guys. Uh, subscribing, liking, and telling friends about it, especially, you know, let's try to blow up the channel and, and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to really impact, uh, a lot of our separated brethren to get them to see that they're missing part of the word of God. All right. So let's go to the finding of fallacy. Today's finding fallacy is a propaganda technique. It's called the fire hose of falsehood propaganda technique in which a large number of messages are broadcast rapidly, repeatedly, and uh, continuously over multiple channels, such as the news or social media, with regard for truth or consistency. Um, without regard for truth or consistency. Okay, this is how the propaganda technique works. Have you ever sat at a red light in traffic and you had two large semis on either side of you? Um and when before the the light goes, the semis begin to roll backwards or roll forward simultaneously. Uh, did you ever experience that where it's a little dizzy and you feel as if your car is moving? Uh, that's what this propaganda does, but in terms of information, we always center ourselves in relationship to our surrounding environment. But if you can change the environment enough, you can actually produce an effect that uh, will situate a person in a way that will uh, accept or reject something simply because of the environment. So if they bombard you with a particular message over all the channels so that the only places you access it's always saying the same thing, eventually you'll start getting the impression that maybe you with your differing opinions are really on the outside and that the rest of the world is on the other side, when in fact it may not be. It just might be that everybody is broadcasting whatever falsehood, right? Hence the, the fire hose of falsehood. So this occurs a lot in news, social media. But I also w wanted to highlight that it also is used very effectively in coercive uh, mind control groups like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, that type of thing, by restricting information and by keeping repeating over and over again in all different channels the same narrative. It creates this uh, impression that the whole world is essentially part of your worldview. You know, your, your whole group is part of the world, and the world is part of your group. And so you, it's difficult to think outside of the box when you're being bombarded by the same message repeatedly, continuously, over multiple channels. 
So that's our uh, finding the fallacy, which is a propaganda technique for today. The firehood, uh, firehood, the fire hose of falsehood. All right, let's talk about our early church father for today. He was St. Athanasius, big, 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 big early church father. St. Athanasius was born in Alexandria about the year 295 AD. He was ordained a deacon in 319 and uh, accomplished, uh, accompanied his bishop, Alexander, to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, serving as his secretary. In 328, he succeeded Alexander in the See of Alexandria. His career was principally to principal, uh, he was the champion of Nicaea doctrine against the onslaughts of the Arians, and it was a very stormy career indeed. He was exiled from his see, get this, five times during his lifetime, and he finally regained his place again in 366 AD in the last years until 373 at his death, uh, was lived in comparative peace. So ardent defender of the faith and uh, really went toe-to-toe with the Arians. A very important early church father in terms of apologetics. So I want to go over some of his writings, some of my favorites, uh, some uh, very important as far as defending the faith. Give a little description for you, just so if you ever want to dip your toe in Athanasian writing, uh, you'll know what to do. Okay, so he has a treatise on, uh, excuse me, against the pagans. This was written very early on, the 318. Uh, it is, according to Jerome, it's two parts of a single work written about the year 315. He refers to it as against the Gentiles, uh, two books. There's also a treatise on the incarnation of the word, which is one of his classics. Um, according to Jerome, the second part, uh, is a single work in which is the first part of the oration against the, the Gentiles or against the, uh, pagans. Both parts were written about the year 318. There is also an encyclical letter to all bishops everywhere. This encyclical letter is uh, the earliest of Athanasius's extant polemical writings. It belongs to about the middle of the year 339. He calls all bishops, all fellow ministers to regard his cause as their, as their own and to assist them in rescuing his church from Gregory, the usurping Arian bishop. There is also the famous Apology Against the Arians, written in 347. Um, It's largely a collection of documents which Athanasius published in his own defense. And a letter concerning the decrees of the Council of Nicaea. This was uh, written about 350, 351 AD. Uh, Of course, defending Nicaean terminology, which was under attack as being unscriptural. Interesting enough, the Arians uh, attacked Nicaea because they used a term that wasn't found in Scripture. Finally, uh, one of my favorites of all his writings is his Discourses Against the Arians. So if you ever want some real meaty, full uh, treatments of the divine generation of the Son from the Father, and just really cool biblical exegesis and argumentation, highly recommend you you read the first three of the four discourses against the Arians because only the first three are authentic. So you might as well just stick to the authentic stuff. And that's our early church father for today, St. Athanasius of Alexandria. Coming up next, our good friend William Hemsworth. We're going to be talking about the Holy Eucharist and the Old Testament. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. 
If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. And we're going to talk about the Holy Eucharist and the Old Testament. Now, that's kind of interesting in apologetics. You often think, well, the first place I'd go is the New Testament, talking about the Eucharist. Well, there's a lot there in the Old that we need to tap into and help us do that. We have a good friend, William Hemsworth, with us. William, as you know, is a former ordained Baptist and Lutheran who uh, converted to Catholicism while attending seminary. He's the husband and father of four who is passionate about passing on the faith and uh, teaching adults and children in the Tucson area. Uh, he's a popular author, blogger, and podcaster. In fact, you can check out his stuff at williamhemsworth.com or go to YouTube and uh, check out his amazingly popular The Bible Catholic uh, right there on YouTube. And William, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Great to be back on with you. How's everything been going? You've been busy oh. doing some great stuff. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's it's going well. Uh, very, very busy. But uh, th- th- thanks be to God, you know, it's, right. and it's hopping. How are you doing, my friend? Doing good. Um, I've been teaching full-time, and it's basketball season. I'm also the basketball coach this season. So, yeah, really busy <laughs> as well. And awesome. I'm teaching three classes over at my parish as well. But, you know, thanks be to God. Great things are happening. Um, kids are learning about the faith. It's all can ask for, and as are the adults. So, Thanks be to God on that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. So, are are you still uh, doing the the Bible Catholic channel? Uh, I am. It's still that? it's it's still there. Um, hasn't been too active. I've been doing some shorts, but at the end of the month, I'm actually going to start doing reflections on the mass readings as well. So, I'm going to start doing that. Cool. Um, been wanting to do that for a while, and um, feel the Lord's like, just get on it, just do it. You know, like Nike slogan, just get it done. So we'll we'll start on that. So it'll be a lot of fun, especially yeah. since that's what I've that's what my material is when I'm teaching the kids on Sundays. Is we just go over the mass readings and then we just bring the the you know catechism into it and everything else. So that's what I plan on doing with the channel here in the near future. Beautiful, awesome, yeah. It's a uh, it's a great channel. I love your interviews. Love your uh, stuff. Uh, that would be really cool to do the readings as well. Okay, so let me have the bad news. So uh, how's the weather in Arizona? <laughs> Today the high is sixty nine. <laughs> oh wow, really? Yeah, well, that's a shock. So we're actually warmer or close to. No, we're still cooler, but pretty close to you. How yeah, are you going so, to cope with that? You know, I'll be honest. I'm still wearing shorts today. I'll be. I'll survive. It'll be okay. <laughs> good, good. That's that's what's important. That's right. Yeah, I I used to do that. It would be snowing outside. I'd still wear my shorts in defiance of the seasons because I didn't want summer to end. Right, exactly. Oh, and by the way, Gary, your Apocalypse channel, 3,530 followers. I went and looked it up over the break. So awesome channel. Go subscribe, everyone, if you haven't already. All right. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so let's talk about the Eucharist. Uh, Your background's interesting in regards to the Eucharist because as a Baptist – uh, you know, Baptists do not believe in the real presence. Right. Uh, it's symbolic. Then as a Lutheran, you actually believe in a substantial presence. Right. Uh, the, so this is a, a topic that you've seen both sides of the issue, even before coming into the Catholic Church. Right. And so, and, and that's one of the things that led to my journey. Uh, I mean, obviously as a Baptist, like you said, it's a symbolic deal. And as I started reading through church history more and more, my views would shift. 
And then one day I just decided, you know, okay, we have the Bread of Life discourse in John 6, which, like you said at the la- in the last segment, that's where we go a lot of times. And for good reason. That's a great passage to go to. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I took August St. Augustine's um, words to heart. You know, that the new fulfills the old, you know, the news hidden in the old, all that stuff. I'm paraphrasing it. And so I was like, well, let's go into the Old Testament. And I found so much in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the new. And it's a it's this, it's this cohesive link if we just go back to do it. And um, Brant Petrie in his book, The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, puts it all together in a very fantastic way if anyone wants to do a huge deep dive into it. But like you said, there's so much there. Just starting right at the right in Genesis, even just starting there, there's so much prefigurement of the Eucharist going from Genesis all throughout the Old Testament that you really can't. It's this cohesive thing all the way through salvation history. And once you put the you see pieces laid out, you're like, oh wow. And that's kind of what happened to me because the coming to believe that the Eucharist is what the Catholic Church says it is and what Jesus says it is obviously was the, I don't want to say the straw that broke the camel's back, but that's what changed everything for me. That, that was like, okay, I have to do this if I'm going to be intellectually honest with myself. If not, I'm kind of living a lie here. So I had to come into the church just based on what I found out about the Eucharist, not only in scripture, but going through the church fathers as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it is amazing how it seems like it's all over the place, but unless you're looking for it, you don't see it, right? right. I mean, you you've read the the Old Testament a couple of times and nothing really jumps out at you, but when you start like once you understand the Eucharist and you're looking back, it's like, wow, why didn't I see that before? Yeah, and it just, it just pieces all together and the the bread of life discourse, like you say John 6. Mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of the stuff that happened in the Old Testament is fulfilled in that discourse, like the the manna from heaven, mm-hmm. uh, the tree of life, the bread of life. All these things are fulfilled in that passage. So it's obviously a huge part, and it's definitely something in our in defending the Eucharist that we should go to. But I think it's a good idea to have the Old Testament background because it links it all together, and it shows that it's this cohesive whole, not just bits and, bits and pieces here and there, that this is something that, God had planned. And I think when people see that, they see that and they come to that realization, they really wouldn't have a choice but to say, okay, this is what Jesus says it is. It's not just a symbol. You know, because the argument, Gary, and you've heard it a million times, well, Jesus said he was a vine. He was a door. But in the Bread of Life discourse, he didn't lose, you know, in those other cases, he didn't lose followers for saying that. In the Bread of Life discourse, he did. And then he reiterated, no, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He didn't go stop them and say it was a metaphor. He turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave? Like, do you believe it? Yes or no? Like, what? make a decision. That's something we have to do. Are we going to believe what Jesus said or not? And if we believe Jesus is the word of God, and we have all these prefigurements in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New, we have to believe what Jesus said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, very well put, too. It's a... Uh... Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't dissemble. No. Even when his own disciples leave, you know, he just says, hey, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah. He's like, That's peace. Just... Have a great day. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like... Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's so forthright, too. So uh, and right. he, and again, like you said, you're absolutely right. He ties in the manna and uh, the, 
the uh, the bread of life. You could see a connection with the tree of life. Right. You know, that's the other thing too with the the Old Testament. Some even some of the more obvious things doesn't really strike you, like Passover. You know, right. Jesus celebrates the Eucharist as a Passover feast. Uh, but for some reason, when we read the Passover in the Old Testament, we don't connect it with the Eucharist, right? Right. So in the Old Testament, we there's a lamb present. You have to eat the lamb. In the New Testament, in the Last Supper, there's no lamb present. But Jesus says, this is my body, and Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the lamb that we're eating. So it's that connection. Sometimes you don't see it. Yeah. But it's once you see it, it's like the Holy Spirit hitting you on the head with a frying pan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you mentioned the, that you went through the early church fathers. Did they help you, uh, you know, point out texts that you didn't consider before? or? Well, like for one, for example, I actually have it up here. St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechetical lecture, and it's with the bread of the presence. And we can get into more of the bread of the presence in a second. But he wrote, even in the Old Testament, there were loaves of the presence. But since they belong to the old dispensation, they have come to fulfillment. But in the New Testament, the bread is of heaven, and the chalice brings salvation, and they sanctify the soul and the body. Do not then regard the bread and wine as nothing but bread and wine, for they are the body and blood of Christ, as the Master himself has proclaimed. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's a... And that's pretty obscure. <laughs> I think if you ask the average Catholic in the pew, or even a Bible Christian, what's the bread of presence? They probably would look at you. No idea. <laughs> I know. And, and it's but, such an important part. I mean, that's that's the amazing thing. Because that bread of the present was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it's in the tent of meeting. I mean, and all these places have fulfillment. Like, Ark of the Covenant, our Blessed Mother. Jesus was in our Blessed Mother for nine months, right? Hmm. As in, gestation, in gestation. Wherever the Eucharist is in the Catholic Church, that's the, the new church is the intent of meeting. That's where we meet. I mean, there's just all these little things if you piece them together. And like you said, it's obscure. And the bread of the, I mean, I don't know how I came upon the bread of the presence over the course of converting, but I did. And I was like, whoa, this is pretty deep stuff here. <laughs> like, yeah, never, never would have thought about it. Cause like you said, I talk about the bread of the presence at RCIA and there's glossy eyes, except for like two people who are also converts who somehow, <laughs> somehow came across it as well over the course of the years. So it's kind of amazing, but it, I think if we bring, we bring these things out, bring it to attention of people. Um, it's not only going to help our, their own faith, but it's going to help them defend the faith too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, in fact, if I remember correctly, the bread of the presence, God says that of all the sacrifices, that is the most pleasing to him. And yet of all the sacrifices, that's probably the one sacrifice most people aren't even familiar with. Right. And let's see here. It's a, I'm going to looking through my notes here. So it's a daily offering of bread and wine. And it specifies that it's to accompany the daily offering of two unblemished one-year-old male lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. So yeah, this is a big deal. I mean, it's a it's a pleasing odor to the Lord, as Exodus and Numbers says. And yeah, has to be done in a holy place. Yeah, very pleasing. It's a pleasing odor. 
And it, it also ties into 1 Samuel chapter 22 when David and his men are fleeing from persecution of Saul. You know, David asked the high priest for bread, and the priest responded that only bread he had was the holy bread that had been set before the Lord. And David took it. Yeah. And that's kind of an allusion to communion. You and I, we're, I mean, I don't consider myself a holy man. I don't know about you, Gary. I think you're a pretty holy guy, but I don't consider myself a holy guy. I'm definitely not a priest, but when I go to mass and I'm in a state of grace, the priest gives me the bread. Just like he kind of gave David the bread. I mean, there's all these little allusions there. I mean, and Jesus spoke about that in Matthew chapter 12 as well. So the bread of the presence was consecrated to the Lord and could only eaten by consecrated descendants of Aaron. And so the story is a figure of those who could partake in the consecrated bread, which is the new faithful of Israel. And we're kind of the new Israel. The church and the new covenant is the new Israel. So we kind of partake of that bread of the presence. It just It's a fulfillment all the way from Exodus, all the way until the New Testament, the new covenant, now in the church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the Old Testament roots of the Eucharist. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the Eucharist and the Old Testament. And, uh, yeah, specifically the bread of the presence, such as uh, an odd sacrifice, 12 loaves of bread placed on a golden table in the holy place. And uh, uh, are you familiar with the miracle that sometimes happened with the bread of presence? I can't say I am. Please okay, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what happens is every Sabbath, the, the priests bring in fresh bread, and they take the uh, the week-old bread out, and then they're supposed to eat it in a holy place, okay? Uh, which, week-old bread doesn't really sound very appetizing. Well, right. on the feast days, and this is Jewish tradition, it's not in Scripture, but uh, there, during feast days, sometimes the bread would miraculously remain fresh and hot as if it was just baked. Oh. So it kind of shows like that the Eucharist is eternal, you know, in heaven. Right. Yeah. Right. Kind of a time That's amazing. Miracle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool stuff. That is. One second. Sorry. That's okay. My daughter so... plays with my headphones sometimes. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That happens. All right. But if I could, I, I wanted to touch on this tree of life thing because I, I got a message yeah. over the break from someone that's listening and he's like what about this tree of life thing um and so of course we know about the tree of life it goes back to genesis chapter three adam and eve the garden of eden so all the way beginnings of the bible and so adam and eve sin and so they can no longer eat from the tree of life because because they sin they deserve death but the tree of life indicates the gift of physical immortality because at creation when creation first happened we were death wasn't in the death wasn't in the program we're the ones that caused that and so that was lost by original sin but the tree of life prefigures the eucharist because it's a pledge of future the future resurrection and it's a reminder of the nourishment of sanctifying grace and it's also 
the bread of life. So it's the bread that gives us life. So it kind of replaces the tree of life. Bread comes from the ground, comes from the tree. And it's that New Testament fulfillment of what happened in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, you know, gave us originally caused original sin and the wages of sin is death. The bread of life gives grace. Grace gives us eternal life again. It's a great fulfillment of the Eucharist as well. Yeah. So I hope that answers the listener's question that got me on Facebook. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, I love that tie-in you made with John 6. I never considered that. The, 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 the bread of life is uh, akin to like the tree of life. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and St. Ignatius of Antioch kind of tied this in a little bit as well. Um, cause he, you know, he said the it's the, the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality, the antidote we take in order not to die, but to live forever in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there's kind of the time. Yeah. Yeah. As you, yeah. And the tree of life, uh, that is, that did bespoke, uh, immortality. Hence the reason why God kicked out Adam and Eve. Right. So they wouldn't put right. the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. Right. Exactly. And, and. Jesus is known as the new Adam, as St. Paul says. And so all these little aspects in there are yeah. fulfilled. So right. all of it, all of it, all of it is p- pieced together. Nothing, nothing is in scripture by accident. I guess that's what I really need to say. It's not just in there randomly, no order. There's there for a reason. And if we look hard enough, we're going to see those reasons. And what the Eucharist, there's so much there. And of course, we're just barely going to scratch the surface but man, like the like Melchizedek, for example, also in the book of Genesis, he's only mentioned twice. I mean, he's in Genesis and Hebrews, but he's such a key figure in the Eucharist. I mean, if, and for those that aren't familiar, um, Genesis chapter 14, we have this figure of Melchizedek mentioned. He's the king of, he's the, he's a priest. I'm sorry, I'm going to read it off. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is the first time in scripture we hear the word priest as well. A lot of people don't recognize that. Before that, this this word was not mentioned. But here it is. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And the city which he was, Salem, means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Who was Jesus? Prince of peace, etc. Another tie in there. Right. Okay. And so when we get to the Messiah, we get to Jesus. It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is foretold and is possessed the priesthood prefigured by Melchizedek. And our friend... Eric Ibarra has a pretty cool book. I want to read an excerpt from his book, if it's okay, Gary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I want to be like Eric when I grow up. Um, not, not really. He's, just, he's, just, he's churned out so much great content over the past few months. But yeah. in his book, he writes, Furthermore, Christ commanded his church to perpetually celebrate his supper until he comes again. The pastors of the church who serve at the altar, therefore, serve as extensions of Christ in the order of Melchizedek, by offering bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ in the liturgy of the Eucharist. Consequently, the church and her ministers who preside at every altar exercises the priesthood of Christ in the order of Melchizedek. And thus the Lord's Supper involves a real propitiatory offering of the body and blood of Christ under the forms of bread and wine. And that's from Eric's book, Melchizedek and the Last Supper. So you can check it out on Amazon when you get a chance. 
But this character of Melchizedek is a huge um, piece when it comes to the Eucharist because we see him in the book of Genesis. He just comes and goes very quickly. Um, he doesn't seem like this big figure, but then the author of Hebrews brings him up. Um, he, he's brought up again in Psalm 110, verse 4. But when it comes to the Last Supper, what does Jesus offer? He offers bread and wine to his disciples, which is what Melchizedek offered. And when Jesus did this, he used sacrificial language to describe the bread and wine. And he's making this connection um, with Melchizedek very hard to miss. I mean, you really can't miss it when you see him side by side. He says, you know, in Luke chapter 22, 19, in the institution narrative, this is my body. It's given for you, which in Greek mean, pretty basically means given on your behalf, implying that Jesus was offering his body as a sacrifice for his disciples. And similarly, he said that his blood was poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26, 28. And in the Old Testament, priests would pour out the blood of the sacrifices. We see that in Leviticus 4.18. All these little connections that, when put together, just make this great case for these um, Old Testament um, prefigurements of the Eucharist. I want to bring up one more here. And so Melchizedek foreshadowed uh, Jesus, and Jesus offered bread and wine using sacrificial language. And so, yeah. Sacrifice of the Mass. We have the the you have the Eucharist, which is His body, His blood. That's was poured. He poured out His blood for us, for our sins, so we could be with Him. So another the Melchizedek connection is very huge. There's been a lot written on it. Check out Eric's book and also Brant Petrie's work on the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. They cover that so much better than I ever could. But that's another huge connection when it comes to the Eucharist in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, Melchizedek is a really interesting character because there's so little said about him, but there's so much written about him, you know, because he's so mysterious. And, right. Uh, yeah, so, I, yeah, no, that was a good summary. And, yeah, Eric Barra's book's really cool, So uh, and Petrie's as well. Right. So definitely put that on your reading list. Absolutely. But, yeah, that's Melchizedek. Great thing. If you're not familiar, go back and read it. You're going to see so much when it comes to the Eucharist, when it comes to uh, Melchizedek there. So, so far we've talked about the tree of life. We've talked about the bread of the presence. We've touched on Melchizedek. And we could do whole shows on these things, obviously. But how about um, unleavened bread of the Passover? I mean, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting thing as well. So unleavened bread and wine play an important role in Passover. And if you've ever been to like a Jewish Seder meal, you're going to see these. You're going to see these things. And so the Jew, I'm, I can't talk. I'll, I get caffeined up before your show and I never learned to bring it back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the Jews were commanded to remove all leaven from their houses and eat only unleavened bread for the seven days of Passover. And it was a memorial of the first Passover when they were, you know, when they were leaving Egypt. You know, they put, got a hyssop branch foot blood over the doorpost, all that. So in the Passover Seder, there's a custom where the youngest child in the family asks why unleavened bread is eaten at the Passover. And then the father responds, quote, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. He who is hungry, come and eat. And so it's called matzah. So matzah is a sign of purity of heart. And for unleavened bread, it's, it's really just a very simple form of bread. It's bread, water. That's what it is. I mean, flour and water, oh, not bread and water. Flour and water. But it's a thing of, it's simple form bread. If you add leaven, leaven puffs up the bread. 
And Levin, it's a symbol of pride and hypocrisy as well, which is one reason it's kind of left out of the Seder meal. But unleavened bread is a figure of the Eucharist in a, for a couple reasons. One, it's a memorial food of the Exodus. And so it's a figure of the Eucharist because it's spiritual nourishment, and we're renewed for the new Exodus. So we partake of the Eucharist at Mass and our Exodus into the world, okay? It strengthens, it strengthens us for the journey to get to heaven. Because this world, as everyone knows watching this and listening to this, is kind of crazy. Especially um, especially in the U.S., we just had elections, and they're still happening, and people get kind of crazy during election season. Sorry, I'm going to get off on a tangent on that, and I'm going to bring it in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, it's strength for the journey, okay, to remember what's important. And it helps us remember what Christ did, okay? Unleavened bread is a figure of the Eucharist. It symbolizes purity of heart because to receive the Eucharist with being a state of grace. Okay, we can't be in a state of sin, or else we're receiving it unworthily. And as St. Paul says, that's kind of a deadly situation. If, you know, we're receiving it, as a priest told me, you're kind of um, playing Russian roulette if you're not in a state of grace and you're receiving um, the Holy Eucharist. So we, there's a lot of connections with the Passover. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the lamb missing. Uh, we talked about the... Uh, all this caffeine. Goodness, my bad. I'm sorry, Gary. I apologize. <laughs> but um, no, there's so yeah, much with the Passover. Stuff. There's so much with the Passover and the Eucharist that really you can't miss it if you're looking objectively at it. If you're not seeing it, you're kind of reading into your own tradition to not see it. That's my opinion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very good. Uh, we're chatting with William Hemsworth of uh, the Bible Catholic on YouTube. We're talking about the Eucharist and the Old Testament. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with our good friend, William Hemsworth who runs a fantastic YouTube channel. If you haven't checked it out, it's called The Bible Catholic on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, definitely check out his stuff. It's great interviews, great uh, insights in the apologetics, theology, and all sorts of cool things. Talking about the Eucharist in the Old Testament. And, uh, yeah, William, man, it's surprising how much is in the Old Testament. Like you said, I thought that was an interesting uh, point you made at the end of the, the last segment that, it's almost your theological tradition that you hold on to prevents you from looking, you know, for the Eucharist in the Old Testament. It's kind of, you sort of have blinders on. And I think so. And I, I can only speak for my own situation. For a while, that's how I was. I very specifically remember reading John 6, for example, and saying there's no way this is literal. Just kind of like the people in John 6, okay? Um, but when I started reading, like, for example, making the connection with the manna in the desert, and when Jesus says, I am the true manna that came down from heaven, I was like, well, he's not really meaning that. The manna was there. Uh, maybe it was um, this dew bread, this, whatever was on the ground. This It was a miracle, no doubt. But at the same time, we're not supposed to eat the flesh of Jesus. You know, Jesus is being very symbolic here. When very literally, 
he was not being symbolic. So yeah, it's your theological blinders. Um, and it's the tradition that you're in that's kind of keeping you from seeing that. So if you look at the old Testament and the new Testament objectively, okay, maybe get some good commentaries, um, that just go off original languages and everything. I think those theological blinders will be stripped off and you'll see it for what it is, that this is something that was supernaturally planned. Obviously scripture is the word of God, but it's a continuous story from old Testament all the way through the new. And there's nothing there by accident. Everything has its place. Everything has a meaning. Uh, we just have to be objective and want to know the truth to get the truth. And not yeah. just say, okay, I want to know the truth if it corresponds with what I already believe. That's right. never going to get us anywhere. Right. It's just the confirmation bias, right? Just exactly. Right. Finding things that supports your faith, which is fine. But if you really want to dive deep, if you're a Bible Christian, especially, you know, I, I don't think bias confirmation works. That if the Bible is your catechism, then you should search it out and be open to things that maybe you currently don't believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yet, yet, if you're on a search for, if you're honestly on the search for, if you're honestly searching for the truth. Yeah. Let the truth come to you. The Holy Spirit will, I mean, the Holy Spirit will guide you in that matter, but you have to let the Holy Spirit do his job and not fight him every step of the way. Holy Spirit will lead you to truth. And you're going to find the truth of the Eucharist all throughout scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the Old Testament, it's surprising. You know, it's like the Eucharist is everywhere, but unless you're looking for it, you won't find it. Like Melchizedek. I mean, uh, that's a figure that if you're just reading Genesis, you might just blip right over and see no great importance of. But actually, it's very important when it comes to the Eucharist. Right. It's like three. It's like three verses. And then you have the one verse in Psalms, and then you have Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Three places, but such a key, key area when it comes to the Eucharist. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, so everyone listening, I encourage you to dig into the person of Melchizedek and how he prefigures not only Christ, but his sacrifice prefigures the Eucharist. Your mind will be absolutely blown by it. Absolutely blown. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, so you have the manna. Uh, well, actually, have we talked about the manna? We have not, and that's kind of, a, that's amazing. This is like the big, this is like the biggie. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and and for those listening, we, the first, most of the things we've covered have really only been in Genesis so far. Yeah. So manna is in Exodus, so second book of the Bible. We're only two books in, okay? So in Exodus chapter uh, 16, verse 2, for example, um, so... Moses, the Moses and the Israelites, they escape Egypt and they start getting upset. Okay. So in Exodus chapter 16, verse two, we read the whole congregation of Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They were afraid, you know, they wanted to eat. They thought they were out there to die and starve. You know, they didn't know where the next meal was coming from. But Moses says, I'm going to, <clears throat> excuse me, in Exodus 16, four, it says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. And so this is uh, 
this is of obvious foreshadowing here when it gets to John chapter six. And obviously John chapter six is super important when it comes to the Eucharist because Jesus says that he's the true manna that came down from heaven. And, and, and you see that this, these, this corresponding theme, Moses rescues these guys, rescues the Hebrew people and they start complaining to him. Okay. They raise up idols along the way. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is talking to the Israelites. They start complaining. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing the parallels. So like, yeah. for example, John six thirty two, Jesus tells the Jews that Moses was not the one that gave the bread from heaven, but the father gives true bread from heaven. So Jesus is using present tense verbs and not past tense verbs, kind of like, like, like Moses did. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And this is where they start complaining. And very interesting, um, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he says in regard to um, John chapter 641 and Exodus 16.2, that both, both sets of people started complaining over something that they believed to be literal. So the manna, sorry about my dog barking, guys. The manna in the desert was a real event, as was Jesus saying that his flesh must be eaten. Real things. It was real events that happened. And this, this is where people say, no, I'm not going to believe it. And, they, and some of his disciples left, like we talked about earlier. And another interesting thing about the manna is normal bread comes from the earth. It's made from grains and wheat. The bread that was rained down from he heaven that came down for Israel was, um, <clears throat> sorry, I have a, some, someone's talking to my kids, kind of concerning me for a second there. So the bread rained down on Israel from above, and it's a natural symbol of the fact that the Eucharist nourishes us with a reality that is not from this earth. So the Israelites in the in the Exodus, for example, this bread came down from heaven. It's nothing that they grew. It's nothing that they made. It was there for them. It was provided for them every morning when they woke up. It's kind of like the Eucharist. It's not the Eucharist isn't anything that's made. Yes, it's a piece of bread before the consecration, but it's change. Transubstantiation happens when it's blessed, when it's consecrated. So. Right. And there's so much there with the manna. Again, whole books have been written about it. It's something interesting about manna, uh, about the Eucharist. So the manna, for example, again, not made by humans. Okay, it was there. Mm -hmm. The Eucharist in its interior reality is not the fruit of human technology. So it just goes back to what I said before. The Eucharist is supernatural. It's, it's a fulfillment of in the new covenant of what happened in the old. Okay. That's kind of what it boils down to. It's that fulfillment of what we see in Exodus. It's fulfilled with what Jesus said. And in the Holy Eucharist that we consume every time at mass that maybe we take for granted and we shouldn't is such a supernatural reality that we are blessed to partake in that so many others in the world so many other Catholics in the world can only maybe get once a year. We can have the opportunity to have it every day if we want to here, and we take it for granted. So I think it's a wake-up call for us that we just we need to recognize the blessing it is to receive Eucharist whenever we really want it. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you're just scratching the surface in regards to things like the mana, because uh, the mana, um, it's if you really do a deep study of the mana, you find out that it truly is miraculous food. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people have downplayed the miraculous aspect of the manna, you know, that this is just a phenomenon that occurs in the desert. It's nothing right. particularly important. But if you look at, like, the description, like, manna melts in the sunlight, and yet it can be baked into bread. It's like, okay, how do those two things go together? <laughs> right? Right. I, I read a commentary on on the manna in the desert one time, and I forget the exact word it said, but it was equating it to... It's like dew and dirt got together, and it was a mixture there that just happened to be edible. And it was a yeah. natural phenomenon. I'm like, no, sorry. Right. I mean, we we can't downplay the miracles that happened. One other thing about the manna that I found interesting in researching for the show, Gary, is the aspect of Eucharistic adoration, um, in and the Ark of the Covenant. I found this kind of fascinating. I never put the, this was something new, and so I just want to share it with the listeners. And so, um. You know, the manna was put in a jar, right, in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was put in the Holy of Holies, in which God's presence was adored. I mean, I I, kind of made that connection with adoration a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so the manna itself wasn't the object of adoration because it was just a material thing, but it's a supernatural origin. But the Eucharist is Jesus, and we can adore. We can go in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Be with our Lord, because the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And we can just sit there, we can pray, just listen, or just sit silently and just be in the presence of God in any church, really, um, that has adoration. It's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, it truly is. What a credible gift, you know, to to be able to do that. Uh, William, hey, you know, as always, you know, this, this show just flies when you're on. Always. Uh, so where can uh, people go and check out all your videos and stuff? So you can go to YouTube. You can type in William Hemsworth, the Bible Catholic. Uh, you can go to my website. That's back up. It was hacked a while back, so it's back up now. WilliamHemsworth.com will get you there. There's a YouTube link. Um, and, of course, I'm all over social media and uh, TikTok now as well. I'm doing a lot of stuff over there. So glad to hear from you. And, Gary, it's always a pleasure to be on. And, like I said, we just scratched the surface, of course. There's so much out there on it. And I was trying to squeeze a lot in, so I started fumbling over my words, so I apologize to everyone. But it's always a blessing to be on. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's always a blessing to have you on, my friend. And, uh, yeah, I know. When it comes to the Eucharist, you just can't say enough. Right. So, uh, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. And, uh, well, like I said, it just flew. But never fear, Terry and Jesse will soon be here with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening, folks. God willing, we'll be back again Monday. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, everyone.